pass is intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Oh my God! Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Tatum drives down and throws it down. Wow! To throw rainbows it down the right side for Kyle Pitts. He's got it. He's there. Touchdown! Oh my indeed everyone, welcome back to the Sports Bits Podcast with MoCo, here to talk about all things Florida Gators football and Boston Celtics. If you follow me on Twitter, I'll be posting live updates on when I upload it, also hot takes and reactions of anything going on in the sports world with either the Florida Gators or Boston Celtics. If you're on YouTube, please leave a like, share, and subscribe, that would be amazing to get the podcast out there, get more heads to watch the podcast. So this week on the Florida it's gonna be, on the Florida side it's gonna be a lot more unscripted stuff. Just talking about National Signing Day. I know this is like a big thing for a lot of the bigger content creators that come with the uh, the Florida Gators, uh, you know, community. But for me, honestly, I just like to look at the list and see who is coming to Florida this next season. Who can we potentially develop to be great stars in the future in about a year or two, probably? Because I don't see, you know, maybe you know, only person I could see really that could. Uh, be a you know day one starter is Jason Marshall if he, he really is that true five star you know he comes on campus like you know any other Alabama or Clemson can bring on any five star that can start instantly. Otherwise, I think a lot of these guys are really development pieces. You know, we don't have too many seniors coming back that would really help out with the depth chart. But you know, I'm just looking at the list right now. We are let's let's quickly let's go over the, the commits right now in the 2021 class. So we are 13 ranked 13th compared to last year, which was nine. You know, I I don't know what to say. This is probably, I think this is the worst year Dan Mullen has recruited since, I forgot sometime in Mississippi. But yeah, this is the worst time, like, in uh, first year that Dan Mullen has recruited in Florida. Which is, you know, with all the stuff going on, I mean, that's fair. But I don't think, you know, I, don't, I think Dan Mullen could have pushed harder because it is Florida. You have that name recognition of being, you know, Florida uh, University of Florida, which has a big name. And especially you have that whole talent pool in Florida, which in all of South Florida and North Florida that could have, you know, been utilized to Dan Mullen's advantage. But you're still competing with, you know, a, a wounded Florida State, I would say, and probably a Miami that's up and coming, which is probably your biggest rival in the, in the, in the uh, Florida area, in the state, of course. But, you know, I just want to quickly list out some guys that I think are going to be impactful next year. This is just based off, you know, what I've been hearing from other other guys in the industry and also just... Uh, watching their tapes and stuff. So, you know, Jason Marshall, of course, one of the biggest cornerback signings we got over Miami, thank God, because his other two, actually, um, his other two teammates from, uh, what is it, Palmetto, actually signed with Miami. So the two five-stars from that same school actually went to Miami, and then Jason Marshall actually flipped to Florida, which was great, a great, you know, steal by the Florida Gators. You know, we got Corey Collier, Donovan McMillan, Chief Borders, you know, those are the big names. Desmond Watson's another uh, defensive tackle. He's a three-star. You know, or like a high three star, but I think he'll be a good person to you know clog clog the uh, clog the lane up the middle. We also have guys who signed but aren't actually enrolled yet. You know, Jeremiah Williams, Tyreek Sapp, and you know Gage Wilcox, another tight end. That's also I've heard a lot of hype about him. Yeah, I mean, I think the main highlight was the transfers, but I think for the signing class, you know, it was pretty average. It wouldn't I wouldn't say it was you know Florida standard for like what we need to compete with Georgia, Alabama and all these teams, especially since this year we're we're playing Alabama week 3. But I mean that's that's should be, you know, on the pass signing classes we should be signing guys like 2 years ahead of time and develop, developing these guys to be able to be starters at the um, at the time we have to play these big teams, you know, cuz we already know the schedule ahead of time. 
So yeah, that, w- that would have been helpful. But you know, overall the sign class I think is fine. You know, I mean it's not great. You know, because we have we we if you really want to be like, you know, I think we're uh, I'm gonna let's go on this. Like you know, we're a tier two team. I say, you know, tier ones like you know the Clemson's, Alabama's, Georgia's, Oklahoma's of of the you know the whole college world. And they're they're recruiting at a high level, utilizing all their resources, pulling guys, stealing guys from other schools, you know. And then we were tier two, you know, we 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 pick up where we can, we can recruit, you know, as best we can. But I don't think we're ever going to be tier one, unless Dan Mullen finds a way to improve the recruiting. You know, maybe, you know, he has a set staff, you know, puts more money and resources on that, on that, uh, on the at least on the recruiting for high school and JUCO types, but. Him with the only thing, only thing I can highlight about Dan Mullen that's really good is the uh, recruiting transfers from other schools. He's done a great job over the years, you know, getting Van Jefferson, uh, Jonathan Grenard last year, and then now you got, you know, uh, what's this, Eric Gilbert, uh, Demarcus Bowman, uh, Duquan Newkirk, and Antonio Shelton, the three guys, and then you have the kicker, of course, you know, Jace, Jace the kicker, but we haven't seen too much from him, so you know, hopefully he'll be able to fit, uh, fill the role that Evan McPherson had. At Florida, but overall, I think the transfer. You know, I'm not worried with Dan Mullen on the transfer side of the, of the recruiting, but mainly the high school recruiting needs to improve. You know, that's why he hired these certain guys, like you know Jules Montanar or like a Wellesley McGriff, who have been known to be good recruiters. I think that's what he's trying to focus on on his support staff. I feel like he's trying to make his support staff his his head recruiter, not his head recruiters, but like the guys who recruit big for Florida. I think you know Dan Mullen. I think in his mind, he's more of a play caller, X's and O's type coach he's not like a Nick Saban who like fosters relations you know Nick Saban is a good play caller but he can also he's really good like uh well let's, let's say like Mario Cristobal Mario Cristobal is probably I'd, I'd say the polar opposite of Dan Mullen he's a great recruiter he's, a, he's not a bad game day coach but I think he's you know he has some improvement there compared to Dan Mullen who's the complete opposite who's a great game day coach game planning utilizing his talent the best way but his recruiting is not on par to these tier one tier two um uh types type you know coaches because you could say tier two you have um the Notre Dame coach oh my god I forgot his name but yeah you have like the Notre Dame coach uh Iowa State coach uh Matt Campbell and Iowa State you have these guys who are really good recruiters in the tier two side that are you know just as good on on game day you could say you know even comparable to Dan Mullen if you want to really argue that um what's his name Brian I think not Brian Johnson I can't I can't remember his name but yeah the Notre Dame coach he he is a great recruiter for like you know what restrictions they have on you know Brian Kelly that's what it is Brian Kelly he's a great recruiter for what you know Notre Dame standard is because you have to recruit guys that are really good at academics and really good at, on the football field so he does a great job with that and still is able to compete with you know Clemson Alabama you know even though we we saw last year but that was Alabama at their like peak level I think they're one of their best teams I think on an average year they could probably compete if they really pull the talent in certain years and be able to compete with Alabama. But on the Florida side, we need to get, I think with the, you know, I love the new hires. They're great for recruiting. But the only thing is that I think Dan Mullen himself needs to be a better recruiter overall. I don't know how he improves that because, like, the one thing, you know, one gripe you hear about Dan Mullen is that he's not a great person on fostering relationships with recruits, which is the main reason why a lot of recruits don't like or don't like to, like, sign with Dan Mullen because, you know, they don't feel like he's not as, you know, good. You don't. He doesn't see that. They don't see the full picture of Dan Mullen until you get to know him about a year or two, and then all the players that you know can can um, can vouch for Dan Mullen have been there for a while. You know, you can always talk to any of these guys who've been like developed, like Kyle Pitts, for example, and Kyle Trask, Dan, Tim Tebow back in the day, Dak Prescott. You can talk to these guys, and they'll always 
praise and always vouch for Dan Mullen. But these guys have, have been with him long enough that they've built that relationship from the ground up that you know usually would get started when they recruit him at the start. That's what separates you know Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban from everybody else. He's they're able to already build a baseline relationship with a lot of recruits that is able to pull them to their program compared to you know Dan Mullen who needs time you know developing them because that's also another good skill he has. He's really good at developing talent and be able to make these three into four stars, four into five stars, five stars in the NFL caliber talent. So he's able to do that, but you you know that shows on the field. That's that's why some of these recruits actually sign because they can see that Demo can actually um, like develop these guys into like NFL caliber talent, and maybe in their second or third year, and, and you know even and hopefully that relationship will be uh, you know like solidified at that time, so they're able to stay another year and keep Demo and you know talent home for, or at the school for one more year before they go to the NFL draft, which would be great. But you know he's he's a developer of talent, great X's and O's. His only negative really is recruiting and maybe his little antics, you know. You know, I think it's a breath of fresh air, you know, having, you know, some funny quirks and stuff that, you know, makes him, separates him from being like, you know, a serious, hard, hard type uh, Nick Saban because, you know, Dan Mullen is a player's coach. But, you know, sometimes getting down to business is tough for him. I mean, you saw it in 2020, you know, certain games that he really got, he got caught, you know, got caught uh, lacking a little bit. And the uh, caught slacking a little bit on the uh, on, you know, LSU, of course, and in the had the, the, the recent game is, uh, games before LSU and Alabama, like he wasn't playing to his full potential. Like every, he doesn't have that. I don't think he fully. I think he has this good mentality about playing well every game, but I feel like he could take another step, saying like every game is an Alabama type game. We either you need to blow these guys out if they're bad, or we need to compete well and show that we are a, a top tier team. That's the next step Dan Mullen has to take. I think from this year. I would say the next step for him is probably winning the SEC East uh, and then going to the going to the college football playoff and playing well or even getting a college playoff uh, football playoff win would be his next step because he's already beaten Georgia. So he's we've we've seen him do that, even though Georgia was a little depleted that game. But it was fair that he finally was able to outsmart Kirby Smart for one game and also outplay well with Alabama. That was also good, making it to the SEC championship. And... Since he was able to show those two things, I think that shows that with talent, he's able to play his best game and able to compete with these top one teams. Like I would even put Georgia as a tier one team with their recruiting and their decent development. And their development's mad, but they're decent X and O's game planning type uh, quarterback, Kirby, uh, coach Kirby Smart. And that also just that that all ties back to the recruiting, getting talent to come to Florida, be able to develop those guys, and build a, a fully complete team, a well-rounded team to be able to compete, like an Alabama, complete with compete with a Alabama or a Clemson. That's the thing that he's missing. His recruiting is not, I would say, is a little below. Like I, as I said, like he, they're not. He's a tier two. I think he's a tier two in recruiting. Even a tier. People would say even he's a tier three. He's like he's a trash recruiter compared to the teams that he has to compete against, which is fair, which is a fair argument. I'm not going to go against that. You know, like his resume says, so like he's not been the greatest recruiter in, and you know, recent history, but you know, it's, it's, that's what Dan Mullen expects. But also another thing that gripes me about the, you know, he's recruiting decently, you know, he got ninth place, like he was ranked ninth last year, which is a top 10 team, top 10 recruiting class, which is still good. But the thing is he doesn't play these guys. He had a lot of veterans last year, which really dug into the minutes that they could have gotten to the to the um, to the young guys and like the young recruits that need time to develop and get that game time experience. 
that a lot of coaches praise on getting, giving them, uh, like, you know, uh, during, like, you know, blowout games or during games that, you know, aren't as important, you know, like maybe FCS teams, like, you know, the out-of-conference out of games that we, we missed in 2020, but hopefully we'll have in 20, which we will have in 2021. I'm going to say that. I don't want to say we hopefully will. I want to say we will have it because we have, you know, big games, FA, FAU and USF. Big out of conference, at least you know it's the state of Florida. Any any state of Florida team, we need to play well against to show that these recru- show these recruits in the area saying like, you should come to Florida, come to compete in the SEC to make you know make your name in the SEC you know type deal instead of going to like a USF and you know playing well you know as a was an FCS team or a you know G five team, you know they're okay. I you know I like how what USF is doing hiring Jeff Scott from uh, from Clemson. I think that's what his name is. Jeff Scott, the offensive coordinator. And they've done pretty well, but I still think Florida's a better team, and I think they need to show they need to sh- Florida needs to show that they're back on top. Miami, recruiting wise, is doing way better, and it's going to be a big, a big thorn in Dan Mullen's side if he has to compete against Miami every year for, for all the five stars that are in Florida. Not to mention the the, the commits of the Florida um, the recruits that actually leave the state of Florida to go to play for Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, because North Carolina is another team that's coming up. North Carolina. LSU, whatever, whatever team comes into Florida and tries to poach their talent, I think you know. I looked. I was you know. I'm a big fan of UNC because I'm a big UNC basketball guy. I was following a lot what Mac Brown does, and like I would think, I would hope to think that Florida could do something similar. Is that putting a wall around the state? So like you know, UNC put a wall around the state and trying to recruit all the UN, all the North Carolina guys to come to either UNC, come to UNC, or hopefully you know, stay in state and maybe transfer later. I don't know. Because there's still NC State, there's still App State, Wake Forest that are still respectable team uh, programs that aren't complete trash. But I think the best team, of course, is UNC now. And then Mac Brown's trying to show that you sh- if you stay in state, you can still come to compete for, you know, ACC championships or even the playoffs now because we know we have Sam Howell. We have these good quarterbacks, good, good you know, a good whole team that can, that can compete against, you know, a Clemson type. He needs to, I think Dan Mullen needs to do that. You know, I would say put a wall around and only have to compete with Florida State or Miami. That would be amazing if we only had to compete against those two teams for all the Florida talent. Because I think Florida, if they keep showing on on-field on results, saying like, we're going to win, we're going to win. Look at Miami, they're not doing as well. They lose to Clemson, they lose to UNC every year, or North Carolina every year. So that, that would really help. Because then that would, have, that would show like, oh, wait, I don't want to go to Miami anymore because they're not winning as much. Let me go to Florida and bring my talent there and show that I can, you know, be a, like an NFL caliber guy with Dan Mullen's development, which is another thing he really needs to. Hopefully he will be marketing that when he's marketing to, to guys that, you know, because that's also the thing about building a relationship that they can trust his, his word on like, you know, I will develop you. I will put time in you. I will be able to make you a star level guy in the in the college football realm and also make you an NFL NFL caliber guy. You know, there's a lot of things you can connect with Dan Mullen that would help his recruiting. I don't know if he's he's probably already doing that. You know, he's probably I don't know the ins and outs. I've never seen like a call with Dan Mullen on Zoom with a, you know, like a Jason Marshall or Corey Collier. I don't know what he said to them. But there's a lot of things he can say to convince these guys to come to Florida over Miami or uh, Florida State and these and if these two Florida State or Miami figure like they're figuring it out, but if they get it locked down pack in Florida, that would really screw over Florida's chances of ever getting good talent and competing well in the SEC. Like we're going to be ending up like like a like a Tennessee at this point. Like we're not going to be that that terrible, but like the recruiting wise, we're going to be like at a Tennessee point or a Kentucky point 
uh, where they're you know not as good, and you're getting poached. Your talent's getting poached by other good teams around the area and around the states surrounding you, which is going to really be really suck for Florida. But I'm going to wrap it up with saying you know it's an okay signing class. Denville needs to get better. There's a lot of things that that set Denville back in Florida this that in this 2020 season being eight and four, which is his worst record coming to Florida. You know, win uh, win percentage wise, you know, because you know we didn't have a full game uh, full game slate of you know having these uh, out of conference games and all that. So I wouldn't. I'm only going off win percentage. I'm not going off just total wins because you know last year was really good, and I was thinking you know, you know probably last year was our I think our our best year overall with Dan Mullen. Like our, obviously our 2020 had our had the best offense. And I would say 2018 had the best defense. So if you think about it, like draw an X on a graph, the de- declining graph is probably the defense, and the up- uptick graph or the uh, graph that's going up is probably the offense. You know, I wouldn't say our offense was the best. 2018, I think 2019 improved, especially with Kyle Trask stepping in for Felipe Franks, and then you have 2020, our best offense compared to 2018 best defense. You know, I love those guys. Now they're NFL starting guys. You know, Chauncey Gardner Williams, who's now on the Saints, that kind of stuff. 2019. You know, we saw a respectable team. You know, C.J. Henderson went top 10 in the draft, which was amazing. And all these guys. And then he had, like, Jonathan Grenard and uh, Zuniga, Jabari Zuniga, which were really good players on, on the uh, in the box. Then our 2020 team, you know, we had Kyrie Campbell. And no, no real secondary. And we're going to discount Marco Wilson because, you know, shoe throw just killed his career. So, you know, that's going to forever haunt him in the NFL or wherever he decides to go. But yeah, that it, hopefully that defense could take a you know a step up from the last year. Hopefully, actually, you know, I feel like they can can't get any worse. If they get worse, probably they're gonna have to fire Todd Grantham or Jan Mullen. They're gonna have to fire both probably one of them. I don't know if the defense gets progressively worse. Hopefully they can get better. Hopefully with a full spring and a full summer they'll be able to fix all that. I mean, with the new new transfers and the new signings, I think if they give them time, give them time to develop, I think they'll be a great they'll be a great team next year or the year after. You know, twenty twenty two. I'm looking forward to, uh, just because I feel like with this with the guys that are you know the, all the young guys, they'll have time to develop the next year. Hopefully, maybe compete in the SEC East. You know, maybe like put make Georgia close or maybe beat LSU or beat Georgia. One of those two. You know, make Alabama close again or even beat them. There's a lot of weird things that could happen. You know, I'm not going to put any like high hopes on being, you know, again undefeated before the LSU loss or whatever, or you know, having a close game against Texas A&M type deal. But I feel like we can. Comp- I just want to be competitive next year. Have fun. Have games to watch that are actually fun compared to, you know, back when Jim McElwain and and Muschamp were there. Because a uh, little backstory on me, I never really seriously watched every game of Florida football until 2018. So I watched like the big games with McElwain era. Uh, you know, 2016 with, you know, Georgia games and all that and the SEC championship in 2017. You know, I never really watched it seriously until 2018 when Dan Mullen came. So I've only truly been dedicated and I watched every game when Dan, since Dan Mullen has been here. So I've only seen the all the good and bad with Dan Mullen. I've never seen, you know, the stuff past that. I wish, I, you know, I wish I probably st- should study more of the, the Will Muschamp era and probably the McElwain and see what, you know, why we're so good now compared to those days. But, you know, besides the point, I'm going on a little tangent. But overall, I, I'm fine with the signing class. It's not great. I'm never going to praise it. You know, I'm not going to praise it until, like, I, I think with our capabilities as a, as a brand, as a program, we should be top seven every year. Top five, we should be pushing top five or are in the top five every year. We should not be 13th in the in the national rank. And that just really shows that 
recruiting needs to improve. That's the gist of what I'm pointing at. Recruiting needs to improve. Hopefully with these new coaching hires, recruiting will improve. You know, we'll still be good good as X's and O's with Dan Mullen. Yeah, that's it. And for the that's it for the Florida side. You know, hope you all enjoyed. And I'm going to be moving on to the Boston Celtics side. We got a, we got a four-game slate to talk about and a lot of things happening. I got a couple minute takes, uh, one-minute takes at the end that are going to be really interesting if you guys want to listen to our reactions on those those events that I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to say anything yet, but I'll let you all stay with it. But, yeah, on the floor side, I will see you all next week. Here for the Boss Celtics side, stick around. We'll be back in a minute. Peace. All right, we're back, and the whole trio is back. And I know we're on Zoom, so we got 40 minutes to go, 40 minutes to get us get this all done. So let's get straight into it. So the the recent game, uh, recent slate of games was the record was two and two, two losses, two wins. Uh, and my next note is Kemba's still trash. We'll talk about that later. And uh, <laughs> we'll go straight into the Warriors game. Uh, my couple notes I had here was uh, the total rebounds per team. Uh, the Celtics had 51 and the Warriors had 30, 36. I mean, that's that that was probably one of the stat lines, like the probably the padlocks, I, I would say, for the win. And the next thing is that uh, Jalen Brown, uh, one for six at the three point line. I don't I don't know. That was that. Yikes. And then the last the last one, I, last thing I want to put up is that one thing that's going to be recurring in this episode is Grant Williams, as I'm going to say, he's like a reemerging. He's a he's reemerging as like a really good bench player, probably a, a, like a decent role player for the Celtics. His, his stat line in that game was 15 uh, points, four rebounds, two blocks. And, you know, with all those numbers out, like what do you guys like see from those stats that, you know, could probably talk about the Warriors, how they played the season, et cetera. Like, uh, James, what do you think about that? Um, well, so personally, I think that Grant Williams is also, I would agree, uh, he's starting to break out and become a really good bench player for the Celtics. 100%. Uh, although I will say in the game when looking at the stats – I mean, the Celtics got to bring up their assist and to uh, to steal ratio. I mean, the 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 Warriors had nine steals compared to the, uh, the the three that the Celtics had, along with 16 assists that the Celtics had compared to the Warriors' 30. Which, in my opinion, is looking like that the Celtics are more are playing a lot more, not necessarily for lack of a better term, I should uh, ISO play. So whereas, you know, one player is going to be, you know, dominating the ball for a little bit and then end up with the shot while the Warriors have a little bit more chemistry to go around so that they're, they're feeding everybody the ball. But I think that the Warriors are a lackluster team this year compared to a team like the Celtics. So I will say that in my professional opinion, I think that the Celtics should have completely crushed the Warriors that being said, Steph Curry nearly had a triple-double. So, you know, there's a lot of things that you can – it can go both ways. But, um, I mean, in my opinion, if you get the, the assist numbers out, they should smack them out of the park every every time that they play them. All right. And uh, my quick thing about that is uh, it was just kind of funny you were talking about assists. I mean, that's kind of how the Warriors run. They run a lot of, like, spacing, a lot of ball movements. So they're exactly. passing a lot. Their ball so movement this... is definitely one of their strong seats. So the assist up numbers are definitely higher with the Warriors than any other team just because of how their system is. And, Reed, do you have any other additional comments about the Warriors? I'm trying to be real quick with this game. It's not yeah, really that Yeah, I important. mean, nothing that James hasn't said already. I completely agree with him. Celtics got to get their assist numbers up. Uh, I mean, Kemba Walker, starting point guard, five assists, which that's not terrible, but, I mean, he's consistently getting five assists. He needs to get more. You know, they really need to work on their ball movement. 
I agree. And uh, yeah, there's the Warriors. There's not much. We got to win. You know, it was closer than I wanted, but you know, it's fine. But the next important game, which is, you know, probably the highlight, I probably, I would say through the whole uh, slate of games is the Kings game. And that's one I watched all the way through. And my first note is Tyrese Halliburton cannot contain him. 21 points, four assists, tough two matchup. steals. Tough, tough matchup. matchup. He is mm-hmm. a tough matchup. And um, like my, like, what do you thought about that? Like first, what's your thoughts on Tyrese Halliburton this season, Reed? Uh, I mean, honestly, like I don't follow the Kings too, too much. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't have too much to say about him, but honestly, I mean, he's looking pretty good. 20, 20 years old. He's averaging like 11, you know, 11 points per game, a uh, couple assists, couple of rebounds. So I think he's a pretty solid player all around. So definitely he, if he, you know, starts maturing more in the league with more years, I think he's only going to get better and he's going to be like a real threat. Uh, in a couple years I mean maybe even next year I totally agree I mean I think that Tyrese Halliburton is honestly uh, starting to show the league what he is capable of even already as a rookie so um, you know I think that he's uh, a great three-point shooter he's always open in the corner and uh, I mean he's helping out this Kings team a lot I mean the, the fact that Buddy Heald and De'Aaron Fox are their two star players having that third option is always a uh, a good way to um, facilitate the team more. And they, they're looking like they they might make the playoffs this year. Yeah. I mean, Halliburton, I mean, he's a, he's a rookie. So, like, this is great that a rookie can play this well right off the bat. And it can only go up from here, hopefully. And hopefully it doesn't go down like, you know, Frank Nielakina, Frank Nielakina or some <laughs> other players, you know. But, yeah, I mean, this is really good that the Kings have, you know, a future with – and hopefully Buddy Heels stays. You know, we don't know his situation because he was pretty angry at the beginning of the season. Mm-hmm. But the Kings look really well, and the you know the um, the one thing I really like stuck out that I really noted was the perimeter defense for the Celtics was a real problem. Because like think about it, because like it's De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, and Tyrese Halliburton, and like you know you have like uh, what's it what's his name Harrison Barnes, like you know those guys aren't really like like super like star worried. Like I mean I feel I feel yeah, like De'Aaron Fox is an, like De'Aaron Fox is an all star. I feel like you know that's in my mind, but like you know. I feel like our our perimeter defense needs to get better. I mean, the Warriors game showed that. This game showed that. And, like, my note was, is Smart the reason why our, our perimeter defense has not been as good? Not having that leader at the perimeter on right. defense. James. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that uh, those guys who are spe- arguably specialists in the three-point ball, since it is such a, uh, um, a contributing factor into this league now – you know, guys like Harrison Barnes, Buddy Heald, De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, all those guys are going to be hitting shots out wide. Maybe not as much with Fox, but, um, I mean, you got to be able to contain them on the perimeter. And uh, and doing that is what what is going to be key to success in that is going to be switching off the picks. Because if you're going to be – if you switch on the perimeter, there's no way that they're going to be able to go inside, and that restricts their – uh, capability of making a shot and uh, from further out when everybody's switching on the perimeter since there'll be more contested shots. Reed, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely Marcus Smart is an issue, the fact that he's not there. Um, and I mean, he's he's a pretty small guy, you know, so definitely perimeter defense, obviously defense is a strong suit, but he's a small guy, so perimeter defense is definitely where he shines. So, uh, they definitely once they get him back, you know, uh, they'll have better, better perimeter defense. But I think that um, 
I don't, I don't, I mean, the perimeter defense was definitely a problem, but when you look at the stat line, I mean, you got the Kings still shot, they shot 35% from three. So I feel like definitely the, 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 the long ball is definitely a factor there, but um, I mean, I didn't watch the game, so I, I, I can't really see, I'm just looking at the stats right now. So that's all I can really go off of. But to me, it didn't seem like the long ball was really the issue. I think when I, at least since I watched it, like it looked like the threes hit when they met, when it met, when it mattered most, like it didn't, they mm-hmm. weren't just banging consistent threes, you know, like the Warriors, you know, they just right. hit it when they need to, they play good inside, inside offense. And that's kind of how it was. And the main reason I'm bringing this up is because if we had to face somebody in the West, you know, example, the Bla- even the Blazers Spurs are a really good perimeter team now, surprisingly for, you know, what you hear the names like DeMar DeRozan, like he's not a great perimeter guy, but he's been, uh, been doing pretty well. You know, of course you have the Clippers and the Jazz and the Jazz this year which we're going to talk about later has all their starters minus Gobert have a field goal percent or a three point percentage above 40%. All their guys are shooting about 40% from three. So that's the one thing that if we ever have to face them in the finals, if we ever make it there, you know, my hopes aren't high, but if we make it there, we need to deal with the perimeter guys in the West as well as the East, you know, the East is not as much just because the bucks are mainly an interior guy. Like they have drew holiday and stuff, but they're, you know, they're not big, you know, Sixers, you know, they have Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, not really big perimeter guys. That's why they have Seth Curry there. Nets are going to be a problem. Pacers, I feel like, even are going to be a problem. So, you know, that's that's the thing. I'm, like, hoping that our defense is going to pick up, even though mm-hmm. it's funny enough, I actually looked at the number. You know, I always bring up defensive rating. So, currently, the defensive rating for the Celtics is 12. We went from 19 to 12, which is a great sign that we're improving on defense. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's the addition with Grant Williams, Robert Williams, Peyton Pritchard on the perimeter. I feel like those are the guys that are really, you know, picking up their defense over the, over the, throughout the season. So, yeah, I mean, that's the main thing about the, just the defense. I mean, we can continue that with the Clippers talk. We won against the Clippers. Thank God. But the, I mean, I'm going to actually probably trust the defense now. Actually funny enough. The st- uh, one thing I noted was six of the opposing players, which the Clippers had double digit points, including three of their guys on bench on the bench, including Lou Williams, which I don't think he's as good as he used to be, but he had 18 points that night. And yeah, I mean, like, what are your thoughts on the Clippers overall that during this game or during the season, James? Um, you know, I think that the, the the Clippers are consistently going to be a threat because of guys like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, even though Paul George is out right now. But uh, we we know and we've seen Kawhi Leonard lead a team to the finals and win a championship. So I would never count them out. And, you know, having those guys be able to put up those numbers, I mean, even Nick Batum had a decent game, you know, like those, those guys that you wouldn't expect to do well are you, you kind of have to go into that matchup expecting that they will do well and be able to outplay them, which is what the, the Celtics did that game. And uh, I think that they did a great job doing it. You know, the, looking at the stats, uh, the only complaint that I would probably have with the, Celt- with the Celtics is that uh, they just didn't grab a lot of rebounds compared to comparatively to uh, the Clippers uh, when the, it was uh, 34 the Celtics had uh, in total rebounds and the Clippers had 47. So if they want to be able to uh, be, you know, a, a team like, like a powerhouse like the Clippers, uh, they're just gonna they're uh, they're gonna have to bring up those uh, those board numbers. And, they, and I think that other than that, I mean, they they did pretty well. They shot decent. Uh, they made most of their free throws. Uh, their free three point percentage was uh, was solid, forty two percent. You know, like I said, like I just mentioned, uh, field goal percentage was uh, was also forty seven percent, which uh, you know, like 
against a, a team like the Clippers, being efficient is key, and they the Celtics uh, perfected that perfectly, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree with you on the efficiency thing because, I mean, Kawhi, you got Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, um, you know, like Zubats. They got guys who can definitely grab the boards, so you definitely got to be knocking down your shots, and that's exactly what they did. I think this was a game that we all watched together. Um, mm. It was it was pre- pretty wild finish from what I remember. Um, but one thing, just looking at the stat line real quick, you see uh, Zubats goes seven for seven. So I think that that could be a sign of paint defense being an issue. You know, when you get to teams who are going to be bigger in the paint, like the Sixers, you know, Embiid and Simmons, they're a lot bigger in the paint. They're a lot more dominant. So I think that, you know, the Celtics definitely need to work on just various aspects of their defense. And of course, you know, I mean, Marcus Smart is still out. So obviously he, you know, he's the defensive leader of that team. So once he comes back, I'm sure that it will be fixed. But, uh, you know, with that being said, I still think that those issues need to be addressed sooner rather than later. Because once you guys, once y'all get to the playoffs, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough time. Yeah, we did actually, funny enough, bring up the, uh, the inside, the interior defense when we talked about the Sixers game. And it's always funny just seeing these stat lines every so often, you know, these big men getting, uh, you know, going off during these games like Zubosh. Even a guy like Zubosh is like, you think like, you know, he's serviceable starter. Like he's not like a super super like super yeah, no, not, not a superstar by any means you know not even yeah. a regular star i mean seven for seven i i you know i just brought it up just because he went perfect yeah and it, i mean I funny was... enough that sergi baka is their starter and he was he was not doing as well as zubash and it's just kind of funny seeing that dynamic in, in, in the uh, at in uh, at the clippers uh james did you have something to say i will say it every week until he gets more minutes. Robert Williams is the key to the Celtics defense and paint. <laughs> he will obviously not be, you know, he's not a world beater, but like he is a much better defender than Tice and a much better uh, offensive and defensive player than Tristan Thompson, although he lacks in somewhat with a little bit of rebounds because Tristan Thompson obviously specializes in that. But but if they if Brad Stevens can work out how to make make their minutes work and how you know they can get the rotation in correctly, then this team could possibly be unbeatable. I mean that that is fair. Uh, no, I think it, Robert Williams is definitely the key to their the, the paint defense, the interior defense, because like I said before, Marcus Smart is more of a perimeter defensive guy. Uh, you know, he's a little bit smaller. So definitely if Robert Williams can step up, they're gonna be a tough team to score on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm actually gonna transition to the Phoenix game, uh, talking about Robert Williams and stuff. I'm also gonna talk about Peyton Pritchard because his first game back was actually versus the Clippers. And he did really well that night for like his first game back, of course. So he's not going to be like, you know, like perfect, but he had eight points. You know, he was two from three at the three point line, two assists for, at, for 20 minutes, like at, during the game. So, I mean, that's pretty good. I'm going to talk about him a little bit more on the Phoenix game, but on the Phoenix game side, I mean, he, he went off, he had 12 points, uh, five rebounds, one assist, you know, that's pretty good for him on the bench, getting a little bit more minutes. And I was always, we're always, I'm always going to preach Peyton Pritchard, Rob, uh, James is always going to preach Rob Williams. So mm-hmm. that's fair. And Robert Williams, you know, he didn't do too bad. Like he was more an offensive guy that night on, during the Suns game. You know, he wasn't really that good on defense. I think Robert uh, Williams I, was the off, was more of an offensive guy. Yeah. And it was funny because um, I was watching. Was it? The guy that went 0 for 1 from the field was the offensive weapon that he night. Had, he had 10 points. 
Oh no, actually, I'm reading that wrong. Never mind. I was reading. I was reading Jeff T's numbers. Oh my god, ten minutes, kid. (laughs) I was funny enough because I was reading Jeff T. I was like, wait, Rob Williams got ten points that night. No, Rob Williams had one point that night. Oh yeah, that's I read that wrong. (laughs) Jeff T did all right, but yeah, I was looking Rob Williams. Never mind. But the point being that um, just defensively, it looks like uh, this past few games when I was looking at the stats, uh, Tristan Thompson, like just also watching him too. Tristan Thompson has stepped up as a defensive guy. Like he's been. I know he's been he's been getting like you know huge amounts of points here and there. Like he gets twenty, and then he gets zero a night. Like he goes up and down, but I feel like when he steps up, he's able to be a good defensive center. And along with Rob Williams, you know, if we ever have to put like a double team on like Joel, I think those two guys could really be our solution at the uh, on the interior defense. Totally. You know, like Reed or uh, James, what do you think about that? Like that duo in in the interior. I totally agree. I think that the, if you play them together, then the efficiency in the paint will be so much higher and it, uh, you'll be able to get those guys that you need to be able to block their shots. I mean, you can't have, I mean, as much as a slightly guard heavy NBA that we, that we live in today, the, the, the center position is still dominant in my opinion. And not having guys who can be down low and shot block, they like you need them to be able to to be there. And putting Tristan Thompson and Robert Williams, I think, would be a perfect idea to have as a solution. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, they're both they're both big guys. So, uh, and like I said, I think I said it like three times now already that Celtics. I think they need to work on the interior defense, uh, and I think that Tristan Thompson and Robert Williams working together can definitely be the solution to that. Yeah, and uh, let's just talk about the Suns real quick. You know, I mean that is James's what team, so I, w- I want, I want, I want James to mainly talk about this. So I brought up a, a little bit earlier when I was uh, setting up the stuff, but I was talking about Cam Cameron Johnson. So I just want to hear James's, you know, talk talk about him just a little bit and like how he how he's been performing this season. Cameron Johnson has been absolutely stellar for us. I mean, he hasn't been like you know like amazing, amazing, but like is it, as a sophomore in the league. Like this is a big step up from last year and it, it adds a lot to, you know, for it takes a lot of the weight off of guys like, you know, DeAndre Ayton and Booker and Mikhail Bridges, who is also having a breakout season. And, you know, the like his Cam Johnson's shooting percentages from three are, are, are great. His field goal percentage is getting a lot more efficient and he's not taking as many useless shots that we don't need. Um, he's, he's facilitating down low, getting a couple assists in there, here and there, doing well on rebounding. Overall, I have only positive things to say about Cam Johnson and I'm glad that we uh, drafted him when we did. Yeah. Um, I'll read. I'm going to go to you in a second, but I just want to talk. I want, I want Reed. I want you to talk about, you know, like that, that mainly the Chris Paul uh, pickup for the Suns and also, you know, the overall, I mean, did, I don't know, did you watch the, absolutely love the it. Chris Paul pickup for the Suns. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of Chris Paul just in general, but um, I think that bringing Chris Paul in to work with Devin Booker was one of the best decisions that they possibly could have made. I know James, you're making, making faces, but um, yes, I mean, seriously, man, like really, I mean, Chris Paul traditionally is more of a facilitator. Obviously he puts up points, you know, he got 15 points that night, but traditionally he's more of a facilitator. Um, but actually not even that night. I mean, Devin Booker had 11 assists. Chris Paul only had two, however. 
Uh, traditionally, Chris Paul is more of a facilitator. So yeah, I think that bringing that in with a guy who is, you know, primarily a scorer in Devin Booker um, was just basketball genius, in my opinion. Okay, I'm just going to say this uh, for the game versus the Celtics versus Suns. Um, I, I'm going on the chemist still trash. He went for four for 20 at the, at the, at the you know, interior and then the three-point line, he went four for 11. He took 31 shots. Why? Why did he do that? I think that was the reason why we lost. First of Probably. all, I, I swear, like, big this is also going to transition. I'm just going to say, la- like, last little few thoughts with the Suns. Like, we, you know, it was a low-scoring game. It was a great effort. But really, goddamn, Kemba. And I'm going to talk about this right now with James real quick because he, uh, he brought this up to me about a Kemba trade, potential Kemba trade rumored that um, it's oh. – it's, so okay. the trade is going to be Kemba Walker, Daniel Tice for Zach Levine. I think that's what the full details you told me. Yeah. Really? And yeah. Really? Yes. So it was very interesting. And yeah. yeah, that surprises me actually. I really did not think that Chicago. Well, also, first off, I thought Zach said he didn't even want out of Chicago. He might not. He might. I not. thought. I thought I read something that said he did not want out of Chicago, but I could be wrong about that. However, I feel like Kemba Walker and Daniel Tice does not add up to Zach Levine. I don't know if that's just me, but I feel like that does not make a whole lot of sense. I mean, it, again, it is just a rumor. So, I mean, we mm-hmm. don't know anything uh, that's confirmed yet, but right. uh, they also might have thrown like a second round pick in there. But, um, mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I think that Levine would be a, a relatively smart choice for the Celtics to pick up. Cotto has a different opinion on that, which I'll get to, which we will talk about in a, in a hot minute. But, um, you know, I, I think that Zach Levine as a, as a third or second option, depending on how the Celtics decide to use him, if they do uh, trade for him, hypothetically, if, uh, if they did, I think that he would be a really good option for them. He's can, he can facilitate a lot better than Kemba, in my opinion, less of a scorer, but also still apparent on the court with scoring. And it, uh, clearly, based off of this season, Zach Levine is 10 times more efficient than Kemba Walker, because Kemba Walker couldn't hit, you know, uh, he couldn't hit water if he fell out of the boat. Seriously. So, I mean, like, honestly, I for me, that seems like a go-to trade. But, Makoto, what, what's your uh, two cents on that? So, this is, uh, like, we're not going to refute this because we have five minutes. But my thought is trading, going to the Pelicans and trading for Lonzo Ball, who is a great defender, facilitator, playmaker. He, that's all we need for this. The, and he's lengthy, so he's, he can guard, like, three positions, I think. He can guard one through three. That's my thought on it. You know, we can go more detail probably next week if this actually becomes more, like, re- apparent that Kemba's potentially getting traded for the deadline. But I want to – before we end, because we, we are running out of time, I want to do our one-minute take real quick. And this one is going to be very important, considering that, that this is, relates to my MVP choice. Uh, James, are the Mavs – are the Mavericks in trouble? Yes, I do think that they're in trouble. And I think that the, the reason why they, I think that they're in trouble is because they, they're, the connectivity is there. It isn't there. The, the play style is there, but the, the chemistry and the connectivity with every teammate is not there. Every player seems like that they're playing very individually. And for them to make the playoffs, they need to work as a team. And I don't see that right now. Yeah, I mean, Luca, they're they're just not. It's like I mean, I've seen them play a couple times, but I really mainly just look at the stats. But they seem like they're just not working well together at all. Um, and I mean, 
They've had a couple good three-ball shooting nights, but for the most part, they haven't really been shooting that well from three. Porzingis really is not doing what he needs to do for 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 the Mavs. You know, being that one the being the one-two combo that they needed with Luca and Porzingis, I don't think that he's stepping up. And also, I don't think that Luca is made a big enough improvement from last year to really warrant um the MVP I mean obviously he's in the MVP conversation it's Luka Doncic but um I don't think his numbers improved enough yeah I mean so far so far yeah that's because like I still I'm still holding hope that Luka can pull through later in the season I mean same I would love to see him win the MVP yeah so like my thing on that is that I like I've been closely following this a little bit just because I I want like low-key Mavs to be in the playoffs like the the one thing I think that's hurting them a lot is injuries like they have every every player I think like five or six of their players have been injured at least once throughout the season. So they never had that chemistry. Second thing, they lost Seth Curry. They lost a great shooter on the three that can space the mm-hmm. floor and also get yeah. some pressure off Luca, who's taking all those threes that Seth used to take. Like mm-hmm. he's doing like, he's doing some crazy James well, Harden step back. He's doing three. double duty now because I mean, he he's was already taking a decent amount of, sh- of three, three ball shots, uh, three pointers, uh, you know, when Seth Curry was there and now that he's gone, yeah, he basically needs to shoot for two people. Yeah, not, the thing is, he's not even taking like you know clear, open, you know set set your feet threes. He's like he's just doing some crazy contested like dribble move threes. I'm like, what are you doing, Luca? This is not your play style, at least from what I've seen last year. And I mean, that's probably why he's not playing as well because he's like he's turning into like a similar to a James Harden play style, which is I don't think fits Luca's play style personally. And not to mention, it doesn't help that Porzingis is not get putting some, taking some pressure off of him. So, I mean, that's, that's how I see it. I mean, hopefully they can figure it out and they can get healthy. You know, I wish, you know, Tim Hardaway's still decent. You know, I don't know like what's going on with that, but yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, hopefully they can figure it out. I mean, I still have pray, hope that Luca can be the MVP, but for right now, it doesn't look like it. I might have to change my, my opinion later because I can do that. And also Luca is looking like trash. So I might as well have to change it. It's looking, yeah, it's looking grim for him. Unfortunately. It's looking grim. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's really it. I mean, for the show, I mean, this is, we're starting to run out of time. So, I mean, do you guys have any last comments in the last like minute or so before we, uh, I would like to bring up something. Um, I, as a Nets fan am pissed that Kevin Durant is still out. And also for him being on my fantasy team, I am pissed that he's still out. I think it's ridiculous that they're not letting him play. All right. Nash said he took like 90 COVID tests or some shit, some thing like that. I don't know exactly how many he's taken, obviously, but, um, I think it's ridiculous. Get that man on the court. James, you got anything (laughs) left? We got 30 seconds left. Any, any last things? Oh, no. All right. I said everything I need to. All right, that'll be it. Um, you know, hopefully sooner or later we can get rid of this stupid 40-minute crap. But, you know, for now, I'll see you all next week. We got a lot of stuff to talk about next week, especially since the Jazz are playing the Celtics tonight. So I want to talk about that a lot next week. Yes, and sir. that's it for the, for the podcast. I'll see you all next week. Peace.